morning. It's great to be here with you this morning and to see so many faces come out. And uh, yeah, hey, it's just fantastic to still be able to gather together, or not still, but again, to be able to gather um, as God's people. And uh, all of you are very welcome here at the Rock Church Squamish. And uh, those of you that are able to join us live through Facebook Live, uh, you are also very welcome. We just want to apologize. Uh, we've got a couple of technical difficulties today uh, with our sound. So we uh, understand that our sound levels are a little bit low on Facebook Live. Um, so we apologize in advance for that. And of course, this morning we're uh, back to our old Mevo live streaming camera uh, as Jonathan Davies, um, our AV kind of like director who's there at the back. He's got a bit of a break and uh, we're still looking to train up new people. So we want to encourage you that in this time, in this summertime, there's, uh, there are ample of opportunity for you to serve here at the Rock Church and to be trained up in various areas of ministry and service and worship. Uh, that is, of course, worship. Uh, we tend to, as the church or as Christians, we tend to think about worship as, yeah, it's this time that we sing and now we're worshiping. But in actual fact, everything that we do in our life is worship. Uh, your life throughout the rest of the week is worship. And so uh, serving in various of other capacities here on Sunday mornings or in uh, God's church is your spiritual worship and an offering to the Lord. So yeah, uh, if you are interested in finding out more, you can make contact with me, uh, chat with me afterwards, and I can give you some details. Um, if we have kids here, yeah, we've got a number of kids here. Um, you are now welcome to go and check in your kids upstairs for Kids Rock. Uh, we've got Monica, our new uh, kids ministry leader. She is there to welcome you. And I've got some great activities set up for the little ones. Uh, currently, just a reminder, we are only running a program for kids between the age of three and eight until we are able to, um, or in this process as we're rebuilding our Kids Rock ministry, and especially here for the fall as we kick off that uh, new church year. And of course, um, we'll have to see how things work out here by the end of the summer. We're, we're hoping to start rebuilding our team so that we are ready for a big fall launch again when people are back from their summer breaks. And we wanna step out in faith, of course, in expectancy that we're going to be able to carry on meeting in person. But of course, we also have to be prepared for uh, anything else that might happen, right? So yeah, um, that is basically it for announcements. Um, we are now going to carry on with our series that is titled following or knowing Jesus and this is a series that we have been preaching through now for five weeks this is the sixth one and as I was thinking and praying about what to uh, what scripture to preach from um, what came to mind for me was the parable of the ten bridesmaids or as it's worded here in my new international version the parable of the, the ten virgins and it's one of those texts that of course when you're in the church and my personal opinion uh, is that within the church we have kind of like uh, for many years neglected of course eschatology um, and that is just a fancy theological word for 
end times teachings or prophecy. But as we will see today, um, this parable is an end times prophecy or an eschatological prophecy that Jesus makes that is not the same as many of the other end times teachings that we see he gives in Matthew 24 and 25. We normally associate end times prophecies or teachings by Jesus with him talking about what the state of the world is going to be, kind of like a warning of, listen, there's going to be various natural disasters, there's going to be tornadoes, earthquakes, plagues, famines, and it's going to be increasing all the more and more and more, and these will like be those, those uh, labor pains that's indicative of the fact that Jesus is on his way back. And in the church, there's been kind of like this moving away from focusing on those things with good reason because we of course had great movies made you know that's focused on the rapture what was that movie series left behind and it's focused on all of those uh, kinds of like ideas what it would be in the times of tribulation right and what's going to be interesting about this parable today is is that Jesus teaches about what will be a sign of his return being very close as it will be a sign that comes from within the church it's not about the outside world it's not about natural disasters but it is going to be about the church and it can be a bit perplexing because we know in matthew 16 jesus said uh on this rock in other words the revelation of who he is that he is the messiah that he is god incarnate he is going to build his church and the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it and and that kind of like sounds like okay yes you know we're we're going to have church the church is going to expand it's going to grow but in actual fact if we read the bible it's very clear that as we head closer and closer and closer to the return of jesus there's going to be a spiritual decline specifically in the church and so that is what we're going to look at and that's the setup so i just wanted to give that there as a preface so that you don't run out of here and thinking I'm going to be teaching on the rapture or stuff like that. There's a little bit of that in there, but it's, it's not focused on that. It's not about uh, your kind of like apocalyptic uh, views or the, the, what we see in the movies. It's now the apocalypse coming. Okay. So we're going to dive in there. Before we look at the text, I'm just going to pray for us. And uh, then we'll get started. So let's uh, just close our eyes in prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Um, Father, thank you that we can meet together, that we can gather together. Thank you that we can just come and ask for your help. Lord, you know my shortcomings. Spirit, you know all the distractions, all the, the things that are going on. And uh, Father, I just come and pray. Uh, yeah, come and work. Come and be gracious uh, to us this morning. Come and teach us. And uh, I ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. And I'm first going to read through the whole passage, and then we're going to break it down. It says there, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins 
who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both, for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Right, there we go. That is our, our text for this morning. Now, I'm going to start off there with uh, the first five verses and kind of like make some comments and observations on each verse or the setting and what we see there. Now, the setting of this text and the setting of Matthew 24 and 25, as I said, it's this uh, referred to as this eschatological discourse, end times teachings of Jesus, and it happens after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You can read about that in Matthew 21. He enters Jerusalem. Uh, there are many people there that are laying down uh, palm leaves and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then, of course, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, but then he, he leaves Jerusalem then on a daily basis. And then he's got these teachings on the Mount of Olives. And he's basically teaching his disciples. It's it's very intimate. It's not the crowds. It's his closest, most loyal followers that are with him. And he chooses the setting to be on the Mount of Olives for a specific reason. He chooses it because in Zechariah 14 verses 1 to 21, the prophet Zechariah looked forward to the day when the Lord would stand on the Mount of Olives and be declared to be king over all the earth. So Jesus is already making a statement here by being on the Mount of Olives, and then giving these end-time prophecies and teachings. And it's also very significant that he does it from that point of view or from that setting, because the Mount of Olives is at the east or on the east side of Jerusalem, and in between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, there is a valley that is referred to as the Kidron Valley, or the Valley of the Shadow of Death. So if you know anything about the Bible, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, it comes out of most, most probably one of the most famous Psalms, Psalms 23, where David writes, even though I walk through the Valley of the Shadow of Death, I will fear no evil. And he wrote as, uh, that Psalm, of course, in response to when he had to flee from his own son, Absalom, who tried to kill him, and who took over the kingdom of Israel. 
But what's significant also about that valley is now if you also go and look for the last 2,000 years, and even in that time, the Jews created like a humongous cemetery there. Many Jews are buried there. Jean and I were there in Israel in 2016, and we were there on the Mount of Olives, and we looked at these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of graves there. Because they believe that that is where the resurrection will start first. That is where it's going to happen because that's where the Messiah will come and basically reveal himself to the world. And so it is with that that Jesus is teaching the end times prophecies from that setting. But his, his main teaching here his main warning to his followers and his disciples, and you can go and have a look at it in Matthew 24, is to remain watchful and to be aware. We see that he says in Matthew 24, verse, 20, verse 42, because you do not know what day the Lord will come. And again in Matthew 24, verse 44, where he says, you must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect Him. So this teaching again is in line with that. He builds upon the previous teachings. Previously in Matthew 24, there was a, a parable as well about foolish and wise servants. So this is similar to that teaching. But this time around, the emphasis is on the church. The emphasis is on those who profess to be Christian, those who pre profess to be in the church, and he's warning to them. Now, you see there, he starts off that at that time, when he says at that time, he is referring specifically to that time that is going to be close to his second coming. It is in line with everything that I had been teaching before that in chapter 24, talking about the signs of the times. But what is important here in the first line is, he says that that time the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So he starts off with comparing it to an ancient Jewish custom for weddings. And he uses it as an allegory to explain what the state of the church is going to be. Now, to actually understand this, I, I'm quickly going to run through what an ancient Jewish wedding would look like and what the customs were, because otherwise it's not going to make sense. For them, for the disciples, the, the Jews that were listening, of course this made sense, because they would have been familiar with how they go through their Jewish customs when there is a wedding. And for us, we kind of like do the opposite when it comes to weddings. If I think about... My wedding, Jean and I, our wedding, when we got married in 2008, um, you know, me and my uh, groomsmen, we were, we were a little bit late for the wedding, okay, because we did things a little bit backwards. We took our photos, Jean and I, we took our photos before the wedding together. And uh, the reason for that was we, we had gone to too many weddings where the wedding kind of like falls flat after the ceremony because the, the bride and bridegroom disappear for two hours and you're sitting there waiting for the party to begin but they're not showing up. And so we decided we were going to take the, the photos first and then 
me and my groomsmen, we just showed up, you know, we had a good morning and uh, chilling together and we wait for the bride to arrive and then uh, you've got the bridal uh, procession that happens um, and my father-in-law brought John in and then there are the bridesmaids that look after the dress and make sure that, every, you know, that whole day is all about the bride. But in the Jewish tradition or the Hebrew tradition, it is quite the opposite of how it works, the procession and, and the flow of events. I'm quickly going to run through almost like a 14-step process that happens with a Jewish ancient wedding. And I want you to listen carefully to these steps because it's supposed to ring a bell for you about Jesus. Because it's everything about Jesus. It's a picture that Jesus gives us of who he is as our groom. So listen to this. First and foremost, the groom leaves his father's house to choose his bride in the Jewish tradition. The bride can sometimes be an arranged marriage in, in many cases, but it is, of course, with consent. The bride has to say, okay, listen, yeah, I actually do want to marry this groom, but then the groom is the one who chooses. The groom is the one who needs to say in the end, okay, yeah, I, I want this, this lady to be my bride. And then if that is agreed upon there is a marriage covenant offered there's an agreement there are promises made specifically from the groom side what he is going to do and then also what the woman says that she will fulfill then the covenant is sealed by eating bread and drinking wine then the groom pays the price for the bride the groom then departs to his father's house to build a bridal chamber for the two of them. The groom is then absent for an unknown period of time. They say it's normally it can be up to a year that the groom is absent while he is preparing a place for his bride. And in that time, the bride needs to remain faithful. The bride needs to stay holy and pure. In this time, the groom's father has to inspect and approve of the room that is being built. The groom then goes to retrieve his bride after the father approves and says, listen, this bridal chamber that you've built, it's ready. And then the wedding party has a torchlight procession to the bride's home. There is an arrival. There's, there's groomsmen coming and shouting, the bridegroom is here. And then the groomsmen lift up the bride from the ground and carries the bride to the groom in their tradition. The groom takes the bride then to his father's house and the bride and the groom consummate their wedding in that wedding chamber for seven days. And that party then starts in that seven days. The people, the guests already there start celebrating but then after the seven days there is then the big wedding feast and then the bride and the groom live together in their new home that is what an ancient jewish wedding looks like now if you're listening to that you should hear jesus written all over that if you can't hear it let me tell it to you jesus is the groom who left heaven his father's house to come and choose his bride Jesus makes a marriage covenant with us by offering salvation to us if we believe in him. Jesus 
established that covenant with his disciples through communion, bread and wine. Jesus paid the price then for his bride by dying on the cross. And after he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, but he departed to his father's house. And, and you will read how Jesus talks in this language to his disciples. He says, I will be leaving and I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Again, it's this marriage language. And then the groom is absent and being unaware of when he will return, the bride must remain watchful. That's the time we're still in. It's the time in between the times. Now I had to share that so that we can understand what this context is. What is the picture? Now what is astonishing about this whole process that is described here is that Jesus is now talking about his church. If you look at in the middle of the process, like I said, we're in the times, in between the times. Now Jesus is talking about that time and he says, listen, but what's going to happen in the churches is there is going to be a decline. There's going to be a split. There's going to be many who fall away right before he returns. And then he uses this image of the ten bridesmaids, of which five are wise and five are foolish. Now, what's interesting, I read some commentary on this. Initially, I read it and I thought, oh man, does this mean it's going to be an even split? No, it doesn't mean it. It doesn't mean there's going to be uh, half of the people saved and half lost. No, that's not what it means. But the emphasis is on the fact that there are two categories. Those who are wise and those who are not wise. And in actual fact, the emphasis is then on the task of being spiritually prepared for his return, to be ready. Because the groom is going to take longer than anticipated. We have been waiting for almost 2,000 years. <laughs> and we are warned in the Bible that, you know, many scoffers are going to come in the end times and say, Oh, listen, it's been 2,000 years. He said he was going to come and he said, you know, why are you still believing this? And we are experiencing that today, right? Now, there's some research that was done by Barna Group, even pre-COVID, about the different generations, Gen X, Millennials, Boomers, Elders. And their research revealed that church attendance in the last 20 years, church attendance and church engagement has dropped significantly. And of course we know that the pandemic has added even more to that. Currently, if you read articles or if you read any research on the state of the church, we don't know. We don't know where people are at. We don't know how many people have actually now left how many people are still with us in the church? And I'm talking as a whole. There, was, there are certain statistics, I think, in the States that they're talking about the fact that up to 30% of people have not come back to church. And what is interesting about this parable is one thing is for certain out of this parable. Both the wise and the foolish bridesmaids fall asleep 
Did you notice that? It's not as if the wise stay awake. The wise fall asleep as well as the foolish ones. And I would say to you that one might very well argue that at this stage, the church is either drowsy or way past that drowsiness. We are very much asleep. You see, while the church has become drowsy and asleep, specifically in the last year and a half, the world has gone woke. The church has shifted into a gear of where we're just cruising along, focused on attendance rather than engagement. We are worried about, we're still showing up, but we have less engagement, less relationships. And the world has actually shifted into a gear of where it's woke in terms of looking for justice, social justice, but it's looking to achieve it through a means that is by power and not by the Spirit. And it's through various means in the media and political campaigns and pressures and movements. Can you feel the sleepiness? Can you feel the drowsiness? I sure can. I've got to be honest with you. You know, I'm confronted, and I think I've never been as confronted with this as it has been in the last year and a half, with jumping on board with certain movements, or all of a sudden YouTube videos of this political commentator or this new teaching or movement. And various temptations that have come in to try and distract me from what God wants to do and what he has called me for. And the question is, where is my alertness and awareness of what is actually going on around me? I want to share with you what I thought about are some signs. If I look about this personally in my life, signs of becoming drowsy and sleepy. And you can go and ask yourself, how are you doing in these areas? Less devotional time. Less time in prayer. Minimal to zero interaction with unbelievers. That's a big one for me. Minimal to zero sharing of the gospel with unbelievers. I've got to ask you, i got to be honest with myself. What's the last time that I shared the gospel with someone who does not know Jesus? And I'm honest here. Got to be honest that I feel like I'm getting drowsy and I, I hate it. I don't, I don't like it one bit. Because I want to be alert and awake and follow Jesus with everything that I have. But it's one thing to say that. The question is, what is the answer, right? Like if you, if you understand it and you're able to see it and you're aware of it, what is the answer? What do we see? Well, we see... In verses 6 to 9, the following happened. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, They may not be enough for both of us and you. 
Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. You see, in this parable, as I stated, all of them fall asleep. All ten then wake up to the reality that the bridegroom is there. His groomsmen have arrived. They are blowing a trumpet, a shofar, it's a ram's horn. And then they wake up, but the wise have enough oil and the foolish don't. They don't have enough oil to follow through with this procession. Now this cry that happens, this trumpet call, is what we see Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 verse 31, where he says, and he will send these angels, so the groomsmen that shout, the, groom, the, the bridegroom is here, they are symbolic of the angels that are going to come and shout with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. We also see this language in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52. Paul says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. In other words, it's again, when the bridegroom arrives, or the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, uh, imperishable, and we will be changed. And then another verse that talks about this situation is in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16, where Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You see, what would happen in this Jewish wedding context is that when the groom would all of a sudden return for his bride, his groomsmen come and they wake everyone up. They, they know we're coming at an hour. It's going to be at midnight. It's an unexpected hour. We're coming like a thief in the night, but we need to announce it. We need to wake people up. Sorry, was that me? Yeah, we need to wake up, <laughs> okay? They come and wake people up. They wake the church up so that those who have fallen asleep will get ready for this procession. And again, we see the wise virgins, they made provision. They are spiritually prepared, even though they did fall asleep. But what is interesting is they are not able, or not willing, actually, should I say. It sounds quite harsh. They're not able to help these others. They, they say, listen, the oil is not going to be enough for us. Now, initially, I thought, when I read that, that surely the oil represents the Holy Spirit, because... Everywhere in the Bible, if you talk about oil and the picture of oil, it is symbolic of the Holy Spirit's power. But then I, again, I read some commentary, and what the oil is representing is every believer's personal responsibility to be spiritually prepared, spiritually formed, sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not everything on yourself, but yes, there is a role that we as believers have to play in being prepared. In other words, your DD. Do you know what DD stands for? That's another acronym for you there, Andrew. Due diligence. Do your due diligence of working out your salvation in fear and trembling. <laughs> Andrew's laughing because last time I used an acronym FUD, right? Like FUD. You didn't know FUD? It said fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Now, DD, your due diligence. 
we have a responsibility to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, to be spiritually ready. And I want to challenge us on this. What this looks like is, husbands, we cannot base our faith and our spiritual growth on what our wives are doing. Like I can't rely on my spouse, my wife, that if she is faithful, she's the one who's going to church, she is the one who's teaching our kids, that I think, this, okay, I'm okay. In actual fact, it's the opposite. Husbands, we are called to actually lead. We are the ones that need to be the spiritual instigators. We are the ones that are actually supposed to be that example. And so the opposite is true. Wives, we cannot sit back and say, well, I'm just happy to coast along because my husband is doing everything. What this looks like for children is to say that, listen, kids, you cannot assume just because you come out of a house where your parents are Christians that you're a Christian. That's not salvation. It helps. But you need to come to that point where you personally make the decision to repent of your sin and to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to say to Rock Church, you cannot base your spiritual growth and your formation only on what we as the pastors and what our community groups do. Like if that is what you're only going to base your spiritual formation on, you're in trouble. Because we're not the, we're not the only ones that are teaching. You, you need to be able to hear from God yourself. Listen to podcasts. Be awake. Be alert. We need to be spiritually prepared. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13, sorry, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Examine yourself the whole time. Am I in the faith? couple of questions here that I just what came to mind for me to test yourself again is to ask yourself what is your relationship with God based upon is it based upon that you think that you're good enough that you're doing good enough works that you're going to be okay one day or is it based on grace by faith in Jesus where you acknowledge that no it is he that saved me it is what he has done for me me putting my faith in that trusting in him, turning away from my sin then in response to that. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Or are there times that you struggle, that you wonder whether or not you're in a right relationship with God? Because you need to test that and, and ask God by His Spirit to come and through the witness of the Holy Spirit give you assurance. And then I want to ask you, ask yourself, how has the Holy Spirit changed your life? How has the Holy Spirit changed your heart and your desires? How has the Holy Spirit changed your speech? What you look at? What you listen to? There is a change that needs to happen. Two weeks ago, you know, we received the news that my mother in South Africa got COVID. 
and she was very ill and after five days she passed away and this past Thursday we had a celebration of life via Zoom that I was, I was leading out and you know what in that celebration of life I spoke about the life of my mother a lady that for over 40 years struggled in various ways on this earth through a mental illness and also as a result of various circumstances but you know what the the big thing that I highlighted there for our family was how my mother's life changed significantly drastically at the age of 30 when she repented of her her ways she was at, in her own words to me she said she knew she was standing with one foot in the church and one foot in the world and I'm talking about drastic change it was it was quite legalistic but that was what she felt God called her for I'm talking about no alcohol she didn't watch any TV she didn't listen to any worldly music this was her conviction and there was a testimony of a of one of my brother's friends who lived with our family for a year that was in 1991 he was in grade I believe in grade 6 or grade 5 and I was at that stage in grade 1 and this boy gave the testimony of how he lived with us and he saw my mother and he listened to her pray every night and how she was lying on the floor praying and he didn't understand what on earth was going on he thought she was out of her mind and he gave this testimony of how he just saw how her life was completely devoted to being obedient to Christ. Now, everything didn't make sense always to us. But I shared with my family that I look back at that and I look at our family's life and I see the testimony. I see God's grace. I see his favor because of one lady's obedience to what God was calling her for. Why do I share that? What is God putting on your heart to be obedient to? What is He putting on your heart? Because we need to trust Him that it will be for His glory and for our good if we do trust Him. I'm going to end off here with the last section of this parable it says while they were away this is now the foolish bridesmaids while they were on their way to buy the oil the bridegroom arrived the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut later the others also came they said Lord Lord open the door for us but he replied truly I tell you I don't know you therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour Jesus makes it clear that in the end there is only one opportunity to be ready for this wedding banquet in normal circumstances a groom would say okay yeah no please come in but we see that with Jesus it's different. 
the language that he uses when he says, truly I tell you, I don't know you, implies that these bridesmaids were with the church, they were professing, but they were never known by Jesus. So it's not pointing towards the fact that you can lose your salvation. The language that's used actually means that they were actually never really with Jesus. They were in the bridal party, but there was never full commitment to the bride, caring for her, looking at her dress, making sure that her veil and everything is, is right. The foolish young women resemble the shallow rocky soil from the parable of the, the sower. The, the seed sprang up really quickly, perhaps, but as soon as persecution, as soon as trouble came, they fell away. And so in the end, if we look at this parable, there are three main points that Jesus is making here. Jesus wants to tell us that like the bridegroom, he may delay his coming. God the Father actually will delay Jesus' coming longer than what we expect. It might very well be that it's another thousand years. But currently, if I look at the world, I don't want to be here for another thousand years. And thank the Lord I won't be. Because, <laughs> you know. But it might be. Who knows? But he is delaying his coming. We do know that. Like the wise bridesmaid, the second point there, or closing point, his followers must be prepared for that delay. We need to be prepared and know the Bible teaches, yes, God is, it, it seems like he's slow, but he does that because he wants more and more people to come to faith in him. But we need to be prepared and have enough oil to sustain us. And like the foolish bridesmaids, those who do not prepare adequately may discover a point beyond which there is no return. When the end comes, it will be too late. It might be that you meet or have to meet Christ prematurely as a result of death or at his second coming. But you've got to make sure that it is not too late. So in the end, the charge is this. Be watchful. Keep watch. And I'm going to leave you with this, what I feel is our main encouragement from Jesus in Matthew 26, verses 40 to 41. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his top three disciples. It's the elite. It's the cream of the crop. It's Peter, John, and James. And he says, keep watch with me. Pray. And we know the story. They fall asleep and Jesus returns to them and he says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Rock Church, are we as a church willing to make prayer and watchfulness a priority? Will we as a church family actually start saying, Lord, we want to seek your face first? before making any plans here for the fall? Will we trust that Jesus' heart is actually more about prayer 
and our hearts being turned to him as he says, my house shall be called a house of bread. I'm going to be honest that we are not there yet. And I know that I know that I know that Jesus' desire for us is to trust in him and to trust in his power through prayer. My encouragement to us as a church family is I know we are pivoting. It's summer. We're trying to get back and figure out what does it look like going forward as the Rock Church? What does it look like here for the fall? And I want to admit to you that I can very quickly run to thinking about a vision and plans and all kinds of things, but I want to encourage us or you know, ask this question, will you join in with us to start praying? If we start planning to say, okay, we're devoting specific time to prayer where we actually hear from God and what He is saying to us so that we will be a house of prayer instead of trying to figure out things on our own. And I have a suspicion that if we start doing that, that will be the best way to prepare for Jesus' second coming. 